welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Thursday, July 4th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, many campaign websites are not accessible to people with disabilities. An update on Biden's Q2 fundraising and which candidates have already qualified for the September debates. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Our top story today has to do with the primary candidates' websites. A recent story for Vox by S.E. Smith pointed out that many candidates are doing a poor job at making their websites accessible to people with disabilities. Smith's article is titled, quote, Not one 2020 candidate has a website that is accessible to the blind, end quote. And the subhead really drives it home. Quote, The first stop to reaching disabled voters is making sure they can access your policy proposals, end quote. I think the best way to start this segment is by reading a few paragraphs from Vox. Quote, Blind and low-vision users, along with disabled people who have certain other impairments like seizure disorders and cognitive disabilities, as well as those who are deaf and hard of hearing, can't actually use the candidates' websites. It's just the first in a series of obstacles disabled communities face when trying to make informed voting decisions, even though these groups have an especially vested interest in politics. 35 million eligible voters are disabled, and disability turnout lags behind that of non-disabled voters by 6 percentage points. If disabled people voted at the same rate as their non-disabled counterparts, there would be 2.2 million more voters. One of the reasons is that voting is extra difficult for disabled people. Inaccessibility of polling places and election materials is a factor, as are voter suppression tactics. Disabled people are less likely to have state identifications, for example, and get caught in voter ID laws, end quote. So let's dig into this website issue. For this segment, I interviewed several experts in the area of accessibility, which is a specific practice concerned with making things like websites or movies or speeches or buildings or events or podcasts usable by people with disabilities. A typical example is to figure out whether a person who is blind or has a visual impairment can use a website. Many people with these disabilities use technology called screen readers, which are apps that read the text out loud. Other folks use things like braille displays, which do basically the same thing, but instead of using speech out loud, the text pops up in braille lettering on a row that you can run your fingers across. These are simply different ways of accessing the same information. Regardless of the technical stuff, the idea is, if the website has been designed properly to start with, anyone who cannot see or hear or has any other form of impairment can still get at the information. They can read the words, they can watch the videos, they can fill out forms to donate money, or sign up to volunteer, or join a mailing list, or any other function on the site. For all of these, there are well-defined ways to make them accessible. The problem here is that according to the review by Smith and Vox, the primary candidates are doing a poor job at this. And to make things worse, there are other barriers to access beyond disability. Most of the candidates offer Spanish translations of their websites, but many of those translations are poorly written or they're only partial translations, leaving chunks of the site still in English. The net result is you can't access that information if you happen to be a person who speaks Spanish. While this is not the same as a disability issue, they are related. Reading from Smith's piece once more, quote, 
While non-disabled people may not think of it this way, immigration, transportation, reproductive rights, affordable housing, employment non-discrimination, LGBTQ rights, racial injustice, and criminal justice reform are also disability issues. The disability community is disproportionately represented in marginalized groups. Many of those seeking refuge at the border are disabled, with impairments like PTSD, depression, and anxiety caused by enduring trauma, along with acquired disabilities from living in war zones. Incarcerated people are much more likely to be disabled, and many of the Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people being shot and killed by police are also disabled. End quote. And this gets at the disconnect between the policy platforms the candidates espouse versus the actual implementation of their websites. It's one thing for a candidate to say they support people with disabilities and policies around that. But if an actual person with a disability can't get that information, what's the point? I spoke on Twitter with Brian McNeely, a usability and design expert who confirmed much of Smith's reporting. McNeely also pointed out that many of the Spanish language websites are coded incorrectly labeling their language as English. This causes technology like screen readers to mispronounce the words, presenting yet another barrier to access. In our discussion, McNeely wrote, quote, I think the most important point in that article is on how disability intersects with other identities, which is really only touched on a bit at the end. If we consider accessibility without how it intersects with race, class, and sexual orientation, we'll continue to build policies that won't lift everyone up. End quote. So McNeely highlights exactly why this is a political issue and not just a technical one. Okay, next up, I spoke via email with Matt May, an accessibility expert who has worked in the field for 20 years. In our discussion, he pointed out that specific technical standards exist to measure the accessibility of a given website. They're called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG. These standards allow anyone, including campaigns, to test their own websites to measure how accessible they are. There are three key levels of WCAG accessibility, A, AA, and AAA, with AAA being the best. May suggested that reaching the WCAG AA level of compliance is a commonly cited target for government websites. It would be reasonable to expect candidates to aim for that as well. They currently do not meet this standard. I went ahead and reviewed several candidates' websites on my own using free, publicly available accessibility testing tools. On every site I reviewed, I found clear errors. For instance, text was often not text. It was a picture of text. That makes that part of the site unusable for a person with a visual disability, because pictures cannot be read out loud. There were also various problems with things like sign-up forms and other interactive elements. Many videos had closed captions, which is great, but some did not. Some videos auto-played, and sometimes they auto-played in the background of the entire page, with text and other stuff on top of them, creating a potential hazard for people with seizure disorders. But one of the most interesting things I found was that every site I reviewed uses ActBlue for donations. And it sure looks like some are using ActBlue as an overall template for their websites. Getting into that issue, here's what May told me. Quote, Looks to me like many, if not most, candidates are running on the same platform, ActBlue. So campaign digital staffs probably have very little original development work to do, and it shows. Lots of your top-tier sites look pretty seriously cookie-cutter, and if they built a poor template to build from, every site will suffer. 
End quote. In other words, if the ActBlue template were improved, that improvement could flow through to many candidates' sites. That's an area where we, as voters, can and should apply pressure. Every American has the right to vote. But if candidates fail to present their case to voters in a way that actually works for them, how can we expect people to make informed decisions? In the Vox piece, Smith noted that several campaigns had acknowledged the problems and reached out for more information on improving their websites. The campaigns listed are Biden, Warren, and Yang. I went ahead and contacted each of those campaigns earlier this week, asking for a comment on how those updates are going. None of them have replied. Having said that, in my testing, I did notice that Warren has added a web accessibility statement to her website. It is linked in the footer of each page. That page explains that Warren's team is working toward making her website WCAG AA accessible, though it is an ongoing process. She also provides a specific email address and phone number to contact the campaign for accessibility issues. This is considered a best practice, and it's a good starting point. Well, even that page itself has some accessibility problems, all of them stemming from the overall website template, it is a very welcome change. Warren deserves credit for paying attention to this and actually taking action. In my quick review, I didn't see similar statements from other candidates, though, to be fair, I did not review all 25 of their websites. To wrap up this segment, let me read from my interview with Matt May one more time. Quote, Bottom line. Campaigns have relatively small sites that they should be able to keep in tip-top shape as long as the candidates' digital staffs put in some small amount of effort testing sites and accepting feedback. It's good that people are talking about it now. End quote. The Primary Ride Home is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering all kinds of skills. We're talking everything from animation to business to leadership to cooking. You name it, it's there. So whether you've got a passion project you just need a little know-how to get through, or you're challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone by learning a new skill, Skillshare has classes for you. So I talked about Skillshare's class about succulents on Monday. Well, guess what? There's a Skillshare class all about general tips to take care of your house plants. I've had good luck with these myself over the years, but this is a great example of how to get started. If you're somebody who has no plants in your house, or maybe some silk or plastic plants, take half an hour and you will learn everything you need to know to get into house plants. That class is called Happy House Plants, and it is the real deal. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you. Get two free months. That's right, Skillshare is offering Primary Ride Home listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com PRH. Again, that is Skillshare.com PRH to start your two free months today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Yesterday, right before the deadline for this show, Joe Biden's campaign released his Q2 fundraising numbers. Here's a quick update on those now that I've had more than 10 minutes to sit with them. 
So overall, Biden brought in $21.5 million. He had a total of 435,000 donations given by 256,000 donors. That means some of those donors gave more than once. An ABC News story pointed out that if you take Biden's fundraising and divide it by the number of days he's actually been in the race, his per-day fundraising looks a whole lot better than just the total number. Let me explain. There were a total of 91 days in Q2 this year. Given that number, the average per-day raise for Buttigieg was around $272,000 every day. That's a great number. For Sanders, the per-day raise was around $198,000. Also, really good. But for Biden, given his shorter time in the race, his per-day number is about $326,000. That beats Buttigieg by almost $54,000 each day. Now that is an impressive number, and it casts Biden's Q2 in a very different light. If you use this per-day metric, he will very likely lead the field this quarter. Biden's campaign did not release figures about cash on hand, so we can't compare those to Buttigieg or Sanders, but we'll know all about that stuff in just 11 days anyhow. Two other notes. First, the Biden campaign noted that it has opened all its fundraising events to the press. This is actually what led to that recent dust-up over Biden's comments about Senate relationships in the 70s. There was a reporter in the room taking notes, who later provided those notes to other reporters. But that's part of why you put a reporter in the room. It's a degree of transparency that is very welcome. And second, the Biden campaign is doing the responsible thing with over-enthusiastic donors. Reading from a Politico story by Natasha Karecki and Maggie Severns, quote, The Biden campaign also said it is actively reimbursing any checks it receives that are for the general election, which several other candidates in the race are not doing. General election donations allow enthusiastic donors to give more than the $2,800 maximum that is allowed for a primary election, end quote. So let me clarify that. Under federal law, each citizen is allowed to give each primary candidate a maximum of $2,800 in the primary, because the primary is an election. When the general election happens later, that is a second election. So that counter resets and there's a new threshold of $2,800 for everybody. Given that the general election is not until next year, the responsible thing to do is simply send back general election donations and then ask for them again if you happen to win the primary. Apparently, some campaigns, though I don't have a handy list of which ones, are taking in both kinds of donations now, but have to keep the general election pool of money separate. And last up today, let's talk about the upcoming debates, both in September and earlier in July. First, let me lay out some key dates coming up. The next debates are July 30th and 31st. That's a Tuesday and Wednesday in Detroit. That July debate is hosted by CNN and has the same qualifying rules as the June debate we had just last week. After that July debate, the DNC is taking August off. The next DNC primary debate will be on September 12th and 13th, or maybe just the 12th, if not too many people qualify. That one will be hosted by ABC, but other details there have not yet been released. Okay, so who in this field will make it into those September debates? According to the New York Times, there are five candidates who have a lock on both the donor numbers and the likely polling leading up to September. Those candidates are Biden, Buttigieg, 
Harris, Sanders, and Warren. In addition to those five, it is likely that Beto O'Rourke will also make it to those debates, though there are some minor question marks about his most recent polling numbers, which haven't been so hot. Then again, he has enough of a national profile and a polling history that it seems likely he will achieve that polling threshold. He has already passed the donor threshold, so that's not a problem for him. And then you have Andrew Yang, who has also crossed the donor threshold, but is kind of on the bubble in terms of polling. He has achieved 2% in polls before, but at times he's not quite hitting that 2% target. For instance, in both the Quinnipiac and the ABC slash Washington Post polls I discussed yesterday, Yang hit 1%. So for Yang, the mission right now is to spend July and August pushing for better poll numbers, just like O'Rourke. So that is currently the list as we know it, and that's just seven people. I'm going to read here from a New York Times piece by Matt Stevens and Maggie Astor. Quote, The DNC has said that only polls publicly released between June 28th and August 28th can be used to help candidates qualify for the September debate. That means all the candidates have started counting again from zero. Candidates like Mr. Booker and Ms. Klobuchar often poll at 2% and above and may very well reach the polling threshold, but they could struggle to get to 130,000 unique donors. End quote. That's a good reminder that, oh, by the way, nobody has four qualifying polls yet because not enough polls have been released yet, though that will change very rapidly as early as next week, perhaps. A lot of what we're dealing with here is the assumption that candidates can draw 2% in four polls, which is a super solid bet for about eight or maybe nine of them. So, while we are still a few months out from the September debate, across the country right now are a few dozen teams working hard to plot their path to this next milestone. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, Independence Day is upon us. I'm going to use my three-day weekend to tackle some house projects. I've got to figure out how to fix an IKEA shelf that fell off my office wall the day after I installed it. It's probably my fault, but, you know. I'm going to put in some door sweeps on our ancient farmhouse doors, and then I'm going to spray WD-40 all over everything I can find. I am excited about that. Oh, and today I posted my first transcript for this podcast. That link is in the show notes, and I'm going to look at going back and posting older transcripts as well, because I wrote scripts for every show we've done so far. Well, enjoy the fireworks, drive safely, and as always, thanks for listening. I will talk to y'all on Monday. Monday.